says at Central Baptist Church, we thank God for mothers. And we do. We do thank God for mothers. This morning I read a number of names with the number of children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren. And um, I speculated on some others and had some come in today. And so added to those that we mentioned this morning, Melissa Rivera said uh, that she wanted us to know they've got twin boys and uh, they are among our newer members. They entered the waters of baptism, became members of our church recently. And so uh, praise the Lord for them and for her twin boys. And uh, Myra Salgado has a son and two grandkids. And then I heard from Hannah Candy, and it's like I didn't know this already, but she said, uh, Mom, if she hadn't said anything, has three children and numerous adopted spiritual children and one wonderful, perfect, I don't know the other adjectives, I can't read them all. There, are, Some of them are in German too. Perfect grandson, Klaus. So uh, can I get an amen back there from the booth? Amen. Amen. Dad says amen. All right. And then uh, Vicki called in, left a message. Vicki, I'm sorry I didn't get your call. I was rejoicing in the Lord with our family this afternoon. But uh, Vicki has six children, ten grandchildren, two great-grands, uh, and... Uh, Praise the Lord for all of these that we mentioned already and those in addition. Somebody asked me again about uh, the Mother's Day in thing that I talked about. The in thing, I said moms and grandmothers uh, uh, are in our lives. They are in our lives. Uh, they, they have invested their life and their energy, their time in us. They've invested. They have instructed us. Train up a child and teaching us truths and practical life training. And then they influence us by example. So you tell your, your mom, your grandma, you tell those that have invested in your life and have instructed you and influenced you how much you appreciate them. And uh, I hope that you made mom's day just so special. She'll never, ever, ever forget it. We uh, also mentioned this morning that uh, the governor, Governor Northam of Virginia, has uh, said that he is looking forward to the time when we can get back into church. He was talking about a 50% capacity, but then he modified that and said in Northern Virginia, because of our close proximity to D.C., Maryland, other hot spots, that uh, those leaders of Northern Virginia will be meeting to make recommendations. Thus far, we have been totally compliant while not limiting the outreach of the gospel whatsoever. It is uh, the silver lining that God has given us a larger audience than we've ever had before. God is keeping us uh, doing well, uh, keeping us afloat financially, for which we praise Him. Uh, many, many people tuning in. Today I've heard from several other uh, states, and we have a total of 16 states and uh, some international folks that have contacted us this week about our outreach through uh, the internet and various media. Praise the Lord for that. Now thank you for your faithful giving. We've talked about the regular offering envelopes which, uh, which you have and you've been bringing in your tithes and offerings. But the envelope with the red writing that says love offering, we received a good, a healthy portion uh, this morning toward the uh, transportation of the newer pews to uh, Lighthouse Baptist Church in Newport, Arkansas. Praise the Lord and glory to God. I got to tell you, I was really 
really thrilled with that response. Now, I'm going to ask you one more week. I believe that we can surpass uh, the amount of money that needs to be raised to transport those pews. And if you will help us with that, any excess will go into mission churches. So that's our current project. Thank you very, very much. Now, we have already given you a scripture from the book of Philippians. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. That is, I believe, our privilege. And you say, it can't be done. Uh, today, Mr. Spurgeon, in his evening devotion, says, Believer, you can give your testimony that Christ is the only begotten of the Father as well as the first begotten of the dead. You can say He is divine to me even if He is human to all the world. He has done for me what no one but God could do. He subdued my stubborn will, melted my hardened heart, opened gates of brass and cut the bars of iron in sunder. Psalm 107 verse 16. Here you go. He has turned my mourning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, into laughter, amen, and my desolation into joy. Now, does that describe your life? Does that describe your relationships? Does that describe just a general overview of you right now? Are you in a state of mourning? Are you experiencing desolation? Do things seem dark and, uh, and impossible? Well, praise the Lord. Uh, we stay focused on Him. Uh, we, we look to Him. We don't look at the problem, but we look to Him. We have just sung Ron Hamilton's great song, Rejoice in the Lord. It says, God never moves without purpose or plan. I believe God has a purpose. I believe God has a plan. I don't believe God ever cuts us loose and untethers us from His perfect will and His love and His care and His protection. I, I may get out of... I may get out of perfect fellowship, but I never get out of His love. I never wander so far that God loses track of me. God knows exactly where I am. And so, as the song says, and as Ron Hamilton has written so well, in darkness He giveth a song. In darkness He giveth a song. I picked up this the other day. And many a rapturous, rapturous minstrel among those sons of light will say of his sweetness, of his sweetest music, I learned it in the night. Let's say that again. He'll say of his sweetest music, I learned it in the night. And many a rolling anthem that fills the father's home sobbed out its first rehearsal in the shade of a darkened room. I want you to turn with me tonight to a passage of Scripture that is not unfamiliar to believers. Because we have in the symphony of our life, like a piano keyboard, we have, we have the light keys and the dark keys, don't we? And uh, very few songs are ever written all on the dark keys. Now I know my grandfather did not know any music by, by reading music. He did not know music by theory. But he learned to play songs by playing most of it on the dark keys. He would just, he would roll up on that. And you know the configuration of the dark keys on the piano. You can almost make a tune or a song out of that and play just about every song. There are just, uh, just a couple of notes in that particular key that's played all on the dark notes that you have to go to the light keys. So it's mostly all on the dark keys. And I think about that 
And a real person that is a pianist or a piano player or a musician realizes that songs can be in the major key or the minor key. They can be on white keys. They can be on the dark keys. doesn't make any difference. But uh, Gaithers used to sing, <clears throat> I'm going to keep on singing. I'm going to keep on praising the Lord. I'm going to sing mostly in the major keys. And that is, uh, you can determine what kind of response you and I have to the, the dark circumstances and the difficult circumstances of our life. I can't control the pain. I can't control the problems. I can't control other people. So you can't control pain. You can't control problems. You can't control other people. What can you control? By the grace of God and for His glory, I can control my response to all of that. In Psalm 137, we have the circumstance that was out of their control. People that were bugging them and a place that was unfamiliar and difficult and dark for them. The people of God had sinned and sinned and sinned and God finally said, that's it. And He sent in the invaders and they were taken off to Babylon a long way from Jerusalem, a long way from the place that they called home. Maybe you find yourself spiritually a long ways from where you feel like you ought to be or would like to be. In Psalm 137, it says, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. They're thinking about home. And we've got a Zion that we're going to. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. I can't wait to get home. How about you? Amen. Amen. We hanged our harps upon the willows in the midst thereof. So there they are, by the rivers of Babylon, a long way from home. It might not have been an ugly scene, but it was an unfamiliar scene. It might not have been an awful garish scene, but it was one that they did not choose. It was not a scene of their choosing. They did not, they did not say, this is my choice. This is my dream. I want to come here. And there they are feeling sad, and their response is, they take their musical instruments. Musical instruments, and, and if you know anything about the musicians of Israel in those days, they were highly trained and uh, highly disciplined, and they were paid for their work making temple music back in Jerusalem. So now they're away from the temple. They're not getting paid anymore. And they take their harps and they hang them on the willows. For there they that carried us away captive required of us a song. And they that wasted us required of us mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs. Like, Come on, sing us one of those songs. And the question is asked in verse number 4. What a haunting question. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? And somebody might be tempted to say, You know what, I can identify with that. I just can't sing. I can't lift up my voice. No, the Scripture says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Your feelings right now and mine right now have nothing to do with the responsibility and the privilege that we as believers have to lift our voices in praise no matter what's going on around us. Praise God for that truth. Let's pray. Father, I ask in Jesus' name that you're going to help me right now to make this clear. Lord, I'm thankful that even in the shadows, in the darkness, we can say that we, we had a song that was learned 
in the nighttime of our experiences. And I pray this for your glory, Lord, that we might come out of this message tonight rejoicing and, and blessing you and be a blessing to others. In Jesus' name, amen. Charles F. Weigel, great songwriter, was a preacher of the gospel, an evangelist, and gospel singer. His wife finally had enough of that, and she broke his heart and left him. And for a number of years, he was a broken man. And then one time in 30 minutes, God gave him a song that goes like this. I would love to tell you what I think of Jesus, since I found in him a friend so strong and true. I would tell you how he changed my life completely. He did something that no other friend could do. No one ever cared for me like Jesus. There is no other friend as kind or so kind as he. No one else could take the sin and darkness from me. Oh, how much he cared for me. Tonight I'm speaking on a subject from Psalm 137, which used to be largely ignored in our circles, even denied by some. Those that would stand up and say, it's just you, it's just you, snap out of it, denied the fact that even God's people can become depressed. By my own count, I have preached on this subject of depression dozens of times over the years because I have discovered that it is both scriptural and right and decent for us to talk about folks who have become entrapped in this snare of depression. The facts are these. Whether you believe it's real or not, one in 15 adults will experience a chemical imbalance in their body by whatever source during the coming year. One in 15, a chemical imbalance which will render them in a state of depression physically. One in six, one in six, think about it, look around, count. One in six will experience a chemical imbalance that will render them depressed sometime in their lifetime. Now say, what does that mean, preacher? What does that mean? I believe that depression manifests itself in a number of ways. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians, please. 1 Thessalonians, chapter number 5 and verse 23 says, And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. Now, if you're going to be wholly and completely set apart for service for God, it's going to involve these major areas of your life and mine. I pray, God, your whole spirit, put a one by spirit, and soul, put a two by soul, and body, put a three by body, be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have not even begun to plumb the depths of how this works. The mechanics of depression remain somewhat of a mystery, but science so far and medicine so far has been able to determine However, they got there. One in 15 will experience such an imbalance in their body. One in six in their lifetime. Think about that. And if that is the case, here we have a physical manifestation. It may have come from a variety of sources. It may be, as some have pointed out, there are certain numbers and factors that have been applied to life experiences such as the loss of a job, loss of money, loss of 
family, loss of spouse, and uh, experiencing loss causes a certain impact on the individual. It may impact their mind and their heart. It may impact their spirit. It may impact their body. But somehow or other, they, they become discouraged. And after a while, they park there. And they become depressed. Despair is defined as the absence of hope. It is a clinical term, but it is also a scriptural reality. David himself was downcast and depressed. And we find him, for example, on various occasions, down in a dark place. He was literally in a dark place in Psalm 142. Let's turn there. Psalm 142. In verse number 3, he is praying from the cave. Praying from the cave. When my spirit, verse 3, was overwhelmed within me, then thou knewest my path. In the way wherein I walked, they privily laid a snare for me. David was being hunted. He was under attack. There was more than one occasion. David found himself overwhelmed. It's like having the floodwaters come over you. We find it repeated three times in Psalm 42 and 43. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? Emotionally, David was threadbare. David was, was just experiencing the worst of his circumstances at that time. And he was seeking the Lord. He had not given up. He hadn't, hadn't gone into a complete darkened state. I find over in 1 Samuel chapter 30 and verse 6, when they took up stones to stone him, even though he was the leader in the wilderness, David went over and the Bible says he encouraged himself in the Lord. He did the thing that you and I must do sometimes. When you haven't got a family member, loved one, friend, or anybody who is there in, in a physical state to encourage you, then you get over there with the Lord. You know that He's there. He's promised to never leave you nor forsake you. And you encourage yourself in the Lord like David did. We find others in the Bible. It is definitely scriptural. We know that it happens. Jonah became so discouraged that this backslidden Jewish prophet ran from God, went the opposite direction. We know that Moses, contending with all of that mixed multitude in the wilderness, often became so downcast. He said, Lord, just kill me. Just take me. Have you ever said like Moses, just take me out of this world, Lord? I just Now, I know that you and I want to go to heaven, but God's got a plan for us right now. And when we say, Lord, uh, uh, just give me a cord to pull so, you know, boom, I can lose my gravitation and go out of this world. Just think about that. What if God gave you that button that you could press and boom, you could jetpack right out of here? A lot of people would be, boom, jetpacking out of here. It's not your time. It's not my time yet. God has left us here. He knows your address. He knows your phone number. He knows what you're feeling. He knows what you're thinking. He knows what you're going through. It's not your time to leave yet. God has left you here to make a difference. And you and I can be blessed and we can rejoice in the Lord all the way so that we in turn can be a blessing to somebody else. I think about Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. My, what a man of God he was. He sat there as the dust was flying and as he watched the walls come down of his city that was under siege and he wept, he wept out his message but he stayed on the job and he did what God told him to do and to say he was even thrown down in a pit for telling the truth, but he kept on for God. 
on the other side. We think of some that may not have been so lined up with the Lord. I think of King Saul. He started out well but ended up badly and so so disoriented and disconnected from God Himself that he went to the witch of Endor to seek some guidance and direction. I think of Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 19 and verse number 4. It says he sat under the juniper tree. I'll never forget little Bobby Brindle, the evangelist, as he preached about the pity tree and uh, talked about how Elijah requested death. He'd been chased off by a woman and he requested death. Certainly nobody ever suffered as much as Job with the possible exception of our Savior Jesus Christ and of Paul the Apostle. But Job suffered greatly and through 40 chapters plus until you get to the end of the book, Job hasn't got a clue in the very end. All he knows is that he needs to repent in uh, those ashes and, and repent of the fact that he is a sinner and he needs the Lord and yield to God and he does. And God brings him through. I can say to you tonight, there have been a few of the dark key experiences in my life in ministry. And I can identify with Charles F. Weigel insofar as I can say, no one ever cared for me like Jesus. I, I can say along with the Bible writer, David, as he was downcast and depressed, he knew that the Lord would lift him up. And praise God for that. Even Jesus Christ understands where we're at. A man of sorrows and acquainted with our grief. Isaiah 53 and verse 3 is for us. We have sung the chorus, For I, the Lord thy God, will hold thy right hand. We're not like King Saul, who has to resort to going to a witch. We're not like Judas, who went out and hung himself and went to his own place. I'm going to keep on singing like the Gaithers have written. And mainly in the major key, I'm going to rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. You see, now, how is that possible? We're, we're there with them by the rivers of Babylon. What normally would be a wonderful, calming, pastoral kind of scene is disturbing to them because they're displaced. My balance, my satisfaction, my joy is not dependent upon my circumstances. If the devil gets a clue and he understands that we go down with the, with the, with the uh, roller coaster ride of our emotions, why he's going to get you on that roller coaster ride every chance he possibly can. Once he's got your number, you're never going to get off that roller coaster. Instead, if he realizes that he can't get you, because instead of looking at the circumstances, you're looking at the Savior, why the devil is going to have to go find somebody else to bother. And praise the Lord for that. Sometimes your road is rough, one writer said. I steal away to the Psalms where the sweet singer of Israel David fills all the palace with the tuneful melody of voice and harp. I call out to David, can God satisfy? He strums his harp and makes reply, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Are you getting it? Are you understanding? Look to the shepherd, not to the circumstance. Look to the Savior, not to the problem. Don't look at the people that are bothering you and bugging you. Don't look at the difficulty or the loss, but instead 
Look at the one who satisfies us completely and always. Are we disheartened? Are we downtrodden? Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Discouragement will one day end. But that joy of walking in the way that the Lord would have us walk will never end. Our path will, will go to heaven, directly to heaven, to the presence of the Lord, there at the throne. We're going to leave behind our problems. We're going to leave behind our problem makers. And instead, we're going to find ourselves in the house of the Lord forever. Praise God for that. The river by which we sit and we hang our harps in the problems of our life may be a river of silence for now. We feel like we've lost our song. But you can regain your song because your song is about your Savior. You may experience some suffering and some depri uh, deprivation in your life. That loss may cause you to lose your sweetness and become bitter. That suffering may seem to be so much, but remember, He suffered for you and He suffered for me. It may cause you some sadness, sorrow to think back and to be reminded of how good things used to be, how they used to seem, and now things don't seem quite so good. God is good all the time. Jesus Christ is all we need. He satisfies. He's our sweetness all the time. I looked in the pages of a Christian periodical and the editor said in these times of testing, number one, believe God. Don't believe all the media outlets. Don't get bent out of shape with CNN, MSNBC, ABC, CBS, NBC, and PBS. Don't get all bent out of shape. Believe God. Number two, keep on keeping on. I like that. Don't quit. Number three, be faithful. Faithfulness requires faith in God. That's where our focus is, in the Lord. And then number four, be fruitful. Although social distancing restricts us considerably, we can still have a soul winner's heart and seize opportunities that we get. Keep standing true, number five. Stressful times are going to test us, but we need to stand true no matter what. Don't soften up. Don't compromise. Number six, trouble should not find a lodging in your heart. When trouble comes, just pass it on to Jesus. Don't let trouble settle down, kick off its shoes, prop up its feet, take a, a, you know, a, a, a siesta, fiesta, siesta in your living room of your life, and uh, make itself at home. Trouble should not get a place of lodging. Don't let trouble stay with you so long as you talk about it and fret about it and worry about it. Why, they're going to get their, their mail delivery address changed to your address and you're going to start getting their mail and that's going to be the problem. Number seven, keep a happy, rejoicing spirit. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace. The sun may not be shining brightly today, but you and I can sing songs of the Lord and rejoice. So there you have it. There you have it. His wife also wrote in this publication about the heartache of trouble, the anguish of suffering, or the sorrows of death. And she says, don't blame God. Job didn't. If Job went through all that he did and in all of that he did not blame God, then you and I should not blame God. Then she said, don't let the problem define you. 
Don't be the person that comes around and brings trouble all the time. Brings the danger is becoming identified by our problems. First words out of our mouth should not be about our problems. We shouldn't talk about them so much. Tell Jesus. Then she says, don't overstate the problem. Beware of exaggerating. It's easy for us to do that. The worse we feel, the bigger we make the problem. And that's not the truth in estimating the size of the problem. Much smaller than the Lord. You know, don't feel sorry for David. Feel sorry for Goliath. Goliath was a midget compared to God. Goliath didn't have a chance. And then she says, the valley is not the time to quit. I like that. The valley is not the time to quit. So in the midst of silence and suffering and sadness and sorrow, it seems so strange. By that river, what should you do? I received a little publication and it really straightened out my thinking on this subject. Interesting. It taught me not to feel sorry for myself, not to have a pity party. A pity party is Satan's device to distract us. In times of crisis, whether they are personal or, or public, this author says, Christ is magnified by risky kindness. Christ is magnified by risky kindness. Let me read to you. The ultimate aim of God for His people is that we glorify His greatness and magnify the worth of His Son, Jesus Christ. As it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, no matter what we do, do all to the glory of God. It's, it's a God's plan for us to do everything that we do to glorify Him. So Christ should be magnified in our life and even by our death if necessary. This is a great God-given goal of human life. Therefore, one of God's purposes in this coronavirus is that His people put to death, death self-pity and fear. Let the word go out tonight. I want there to be coronavirus virus casualties, but I want them to be self-pity and fear. I want self-pity to be put to death. I want fear to be put to death. We need to give ourselves to a greater service for God, even in the presence of what may seem to be danger. Christians lean toward need, not comfort. Toward love, not safety. That's what our Savior is like. And that's what He died for. Rodney Stark, in his book, The Triumph of Christianity, points out that in the first centuries of the Christian church, the truly revolutionary principle was that Christian love and charity must extend beyond the boundaries of family and even those of faith to all in need. Two great plagues struck the Roman Empire in A.D. 165 and A.D. 251. I want you to mark this down. Now, I know that we've gone back to several models for comparison. But most of those models have to do with uh, medicine and with medical procedures and precautions. But I want to go back to A.D. 165. Let's go way back. A.D. 251. Outside of the Christian church, there was no cultural or religious foundation for mercy and sacrifice. There was no belief that the gods cared about human affairs. And mercy was regarded as a character defect and pity as a pathological emotion because mercy involves providing unearned help or relief. It is contrary to their false concept of justice. Therefore, while a third of the empire was perishing from disease, physicians fled to their country estates. Are you listening? 
We're talking about the pagans. Those with symptoms were cast out of homes. Priests forsook the temples. But Stark observes, Christians claim to have answers, and most of all, they took appropriate actions. The answers included the forgiveness of sins through Christ and the hope of eternal life beyond death. This was a precious message in a season of medical helplessness and utter hopelessness. As for the actions, large numbers of Christians cared for the sick and the dying. Toward the end of the second plague, Bishop Dionysius of Alexandria wrote a letter extolling the members of his church. Most of our brothers showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ, and with them departed this life serenely happy. Now, I don't know how you feel about this. I know that running through your veins and mine, there is that, that first great sense need of self-survival. I understand that. And we should, we should try to remain healthy. We should try to remain vibrant. We should try to remain well. We should take precautions. But what Jesus Christ has commanded us to do in the Word of God cannot be set aside for any condition that we may experience in this life. Are you listening to me? What I am saying to you is this. Yes, be wise, be cautious, but don't stop being a Christian. Don't stop acting like Jesus. Don't stop spreading the joy. Don't lose your song. Don't hang your harps on the willows when you can sing about Jesus no matter what may be going on the horizon. Praise God for the truth that we can make a difference today and tomorrow and every day from now on. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Every head bowed, every eye closed. How many tonight would say, Preacher, something in the message spoke to my heart. Slip your hand up high. Yes, amen. Lord, help us to be what we ought to be. Help us to never change that because of a feeling or a circumstance. Help us to go on winning the lost and not be fearful, be paralyzed by this thing. Lord, we do pray for those that are sick and those who are at risk. And Lord, we know that there's a great deal of concern. But Lord, you've taken care of me. You've brought me thus far and you're going to bring me all the way through. And with that confidence, Lord... Help us to continue to live for Jesus like we ought to. Lord, don't allow us as Christians to be swept away by the world system and to begin to act like lost people in the face of this crisis. Thank you, Lord, that you're greater than all. Yes. While our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. If God has spoken to your heart about anything, you need to come. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Would you pray from your heart right now? Something like this, dear God, I admit that I'm a sinner. I deserve to pay for my sins. I believe Jesus died to save me. Right now I receive the Lord Jesus into my heart as my personal Savior. Please take away my sins and take me to heaven when I die. Did you pray that prayer?